awake to find yourself. Night comes and you have failed again. Where are you now? Floating untethered. If only for ballast you had used those eight poems that if you had to be trapped in some way for a prolonged period of time with little hope of rescue, you'd quite like to bring along for coping purposes. that if you had to be trapped somewhere for a long period of time with the hope of rescue you'd quite like to bring along for coping purposes. I'm still Andrew Blair. Uh, some things have changed, but that hasn't. Uh, most of the things that have changed are beyond the remit of this podcast, though, so um, can't do anything about that, but I am sorry. The guests this month is Claire Askew. I say this month. Um, I don't know what month you're listening this, to this in. And also, we're now releasing these on a sort of ad hoc basis anyway just as and when we record them, uh, which will be when I'm able to record them. So not a regular feature by any stretch of the imagination, but maybe that'll be a nice surprise when you do see it. And hope you enjoy this strong thematic content. Ahoy. Who are you and what have you done? (laughs) Um, My name is Claire Askew and I'm a poet and novelist. I'm currently the writer-in-residence at the University of Edinburgh. Um, My first poetry collection, This Changes Things, was published by Blood Axe in 2016 and my debut novel, All the Hidden Truths, is coming out in August 2018. Good. So, um... Your poetry collection, uh, I mentioned this to you earlier, the first poem in that, uh, Ducker. If I was doing this, and I have tried compiling a list to try and feel some sort of empathy with the people I ask to do it, um, Ducker would be in there, and not just because it's the name of a character from any piece of Who story, <laughs> although that was my first reaction when I read the title. Um, so that's got the 18th Doctor Who thing out of the way quickly. Well, I didn't know that. Which Doctor? Uh, Peter Davidson, it is not snake dance the one it's another one with the snake the sort of evil um, Buddhist snake okay um, it, Kinder <laughs> it's in here it's captain Kinder because a lot of characters in that are named after aspects of, um, sort of Buddhist and Christian mythology huh never knew but you see I'm a Paul McGann fan so well that's my fave doctor I don't think he's ever fought the snake monster not even in the spin-offs well but yeah. be on his to-do list <laughs> Yeah, I mean, honestly, I mean, that's what Big Finish are there for. Yeah. And if they are listening, which they might not be, because I wrote a blog that saying they were a bit complacent recently. <laughs> Sorry about that, but, you know. Um, Paul McGann and the snake thing. Yeah. You can't see the thumbs up I'm doing, but go for that. Why not? Yeah, do it. <laughs> I do, I do love Paul McGann. I did, like, I did like that they brought him back for one last bit. Yes. That was nice. That made me very happy. Yes. <laughs> um... So poetry. Yes. Paul McGann's a sort of poetry, but let's not get <laughs> He's sidetracked. Poetry all his own. Yes. <laughs> let's not get sidetracked by that just now. So uh, the poems you've selected 
for um, your uh, situation of unspecified isolation, uh, Heaven for Paul, Mark Doty, uh, What the Living Do by Mary Howe, uh, Juno Spring by Dorian Lowe, uh, Scaffold Pike by Norman Nicholson, uh, What Do Women Want by Kim Odonizio, uh, Running Into You by Sharon Olds, she, uh, she Replies to Carmel's Letter by Kerry Hardy, and finally we have Ruin and Beauty by Patricia Young. Uh, so if you go to the blog there will be links to those poems and um, source material for books if you want to get them out of the library if you still have a library. So I hope you still have a library. Um, if not, I would recommend some sort of revolution. I agree. <laughs> so, Heaven for Paul. Um, what is it about this poem that you would take with you to whatever situation you find yourself in? It's um, it's one of several poems that Mark Doty's written about heaven, and he seems to be really sort of preoccupied with thinking about how different people he knows might exist in heaven or what heaven might look like for them. Paul is his partner um, at the time of writing the book and they get on a plane together and in the middle of the flight the plane gets into mechanical trouble basically and during this terrifying interlude um, the speaker of the poem who we assume is Mark Doty uh, kind of has a freak out and goes into this kind of space of complete angst and terror and can think of nothing positive and can only think about how he's wasted his life and he also thinks about who will take care of his dog which is a very poignant moment in the poem um, meanwhile Paul his partner is sitting there getting increasingly chilled and kind of angelic and you know just dealing with this situation in an extremely powerful uh, sort of enviable way and then spoilers the plane does not crash they land safely but then there is a hurricane speeding towards the runway and they all have to be taken into this hurricane shelter. So it's kind of, it's this really bizarre set of um, circumstances that they find themselves in and the poem is written in such a way that I think we're supposed to assume it's something that really happened. Yes. And I think it just sort of offers two different ways of being a person and responding to situations that you may find yourself in. And it, Mark Doty kind of presents his reaction, the sort of angst and terror as sort of the negative reaction and seems to be presenting it almost as like a parable, like be mm -hmm. like Paul, you know, be be cool with things mm -hmm. happening to you. Um, so so it I does think help if, that Paul's a biblical name possibly. Yes, true, true. Um, so yeah, I think it, it just, poems aren't often parables they don't often have that sort of and the moral of the story is thing um but this one really does and i like that about it so i think it would help me if i was isolated somewhere <laughs> it would help me stay chilled hopefully. it's on point also paul is uh not typically chill mm, this yeah. is a very unusual thing for paul to do yeah admittedly unusual circumstances it's oh it's just occurred to me that part of the episode when they're gonna, the plane's gonna crash and Ted realizes that he's fine because this is completely ridiculous. <laughs> it's like that, but not written by a transphobe. <laughs> 
Although there is there's, there's a moment in the poem where um, Mark Doty looks across the aisle and sees a woman in the midst of this plane having mechanical difficulties and mm. they all think they're going to die. And this woman is scowling at them because they're two gay men holding hands. Yes. Which is, and he kind of scolds himself for noticing that and giving a shit about it when the plane's about to crash. And yet, mm. it's such a believable moment that some homophobe would still be pissed off at two yeah. gay people holding hands, even if they were about to die. <laughs> yes, that is the that is literally the hill they will die on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if the plane will crash into a hill, um, I'm not sure geography <laughs> where they were. Um, but yeah, so he also builds up before he gets round to himself and Paul. He does sort of have a sort of look through the plane mm. and sort of a little sort of cross-section of the different reactions before he gets onto what's in his mind mm -hmm. then notices that Paul is being very, very calm yeah. and sort of beatific about the whole mm -hmm. thing. Um, as a first choice, it is um, both harrowing and uplifting in that sort of weird sense of, yeah. it's like a thing of they land and part of your brain um, goes, okay, obviously they were going to be fine because the poem has been written and I'm pretty sure I would have heard about it if the yeah. poem had been found in this situation. <laughs> yes. um, but then um, there's a sudden thing of, you have to get off the plane and leave everything behind mm -hmm. because there's a hurricane about to hit. Yep. And so it's that kind of, almost sort of, uh, some HBO program level of, it's not going to let up, it's just going to be harrowing yeah. situation after harrowing situation, but there's that small bit at the end where he feels like he's starting to come to terms with the situation. Yeah, and I like the fact, I like the details in the poem, like he mentions at the end that they all get given free pizza. Yeah. Which, which is such an on-poem detail to add in, you know, it's... Yeah. But I really like that that's how the poem ends, it's like, we all got free pizza and free hotel rooms afterwards. Yeah, you know? it's, it's actually, you know, it's the kind of thing, sort of ending of, uh, you booked a Thompson's holiday and it went wrong, <laughs> instead of this. So it has got a sort of childlike, and we had pizza, and we got to stay in a travelodge, kind of thing to it. It's a very, I know, the tone of it manages to make that work, because mm -hmm. uh, could be quite jarring otherwise, but there's a sort of sense of palpable relief that it yeah. does turn out like that. Um, so we're going to move on to now uh, What the Living Do by Mary Howe. Um, talk us through this one. This is a fairly devastating poem, there's no two ways about it. Um, this is the title poem from her collection, What the Living Do, which is mostly poems about her brother John, who uh, died of AIDS in the 1990s, and she wrote a series of poems about his illness and his kind of descent into it, and then um, her and her family kind of trying to come to terms with his death. And this is the second to last poem in the collection, and it's her kind of just trying to survive in the wake of this obviously massive grief. Um, but it's addressed directly to him, so it's kind of mm. like a letter to her dead brother, basically. Mm. Just to keep things cheery yeah. for you. <laughs> so, the, the, so without context, um, the opening line is, Johnny the kitchen sink has been clogged for days. Um, some utensil will probably fell down there. So there's immediately that sense of something, there's something happened mm. that 
I don't know whether it's just because it's a poem. Immediately, sort of makes, well, you know, if you're analysing it, it immediately makes you kind of go, so what's this building towards? But then the thing that sort of really struck me about it was um, the sort of banality of the tasks and things mm -hmm. that she's going through and saying this is what the living do. So it's, again, it's got that double-edged thing of being very very sort of impactful mm -hmm. but also there's that sort of element of it does turn everyday banalities into a sort of a sort of hope yeah it's kind it's, of I don't depend on what mood you're in but she seems yeah I think it's a, a sort of list of of everyday things that mm -hmm. she's just trying to see the comfort in in any way at all mm -hmm. So she talks about, today I bought a hairbrush, uh, today I tripped over and spilled coffee all over myself, um, yes. today I saw my reflection in the shop window, you know, it's this sort of list of very banal everyday things as mm -hmm. you say, but the kind of, the poem's crux really is, I should be, I should think myself lucky for getting to spill coffee on myself and buy a hairbrush because yes. this the, is what the living do and the, at least I get to be alive. But now know? things become precious mm. in that sense. So it's, yes, it's, um, I haven't got anything else to add to that. It's sort of exploring grief um, in a way that is both simultaneously carpe diem but also really mournful. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, uh, that's all I have to say on the matter. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I really liked it in a sort of I am harrowed kind of yeah. way. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I like about it is it's a poem that could so easily have drifted into melodrama. You know, like mm -hmm. I am addressing my dead brother who died of AIDS and I'm mourning the fact that I'm still alive and he's gone. But actually it's just really real and relatable and mm -hmm. human. Yes. Um, for holding the focus into something like just spilling coffee on yourself mm. is simultaneously an everyday thing and something you could sort of imagine as an act of I don't know, sort of being shaken mm. by by a loss. Um, yeah, it hadn't occurred to me to just look at it in that way in terms of trying to imagine I don't generally try and do this with the poems, but imagine the bad slam version of them. <laughs> I would like to stress the word bad, um, but yeah, that could very much be. If I think I have actually seen, there's an there's a weird thing I found with um, combinations of if you have an open mic night, I have seen people do very. So they've learned the poem for heart that it's very well delivered, mm -hmm. and the poem is about loss in some form and overcoming it not quite as, I don't remember it being quite as sort of powerful putting a loss as this, but then someone comes up and they haven't really gone to an open mic much, yeah. and they do a sort of A-B-A-B -A -B rhyme scheme yeah. in a halting voice <laughs> with shaking paper, but it's much, much more affecting mm -hmm. um, than, than, the than, than the slick version. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I haven't really examined why that is beyond the fact that the sort of emotions behind it and the nerves are more palpable. But I don't know, there's always that slightly weird thing of um, the more confident you get as a performer, then 
maybe sort of the more you repeat a poem about loss as a performer, the more you end up sort of acclimatizing to it, which is moving it into a different context entirely. So really, I feel like I could, there's a whole podcast just in that. Yes. <laughs> but I mean... I was thinking of asking some people who have done that how they felt at the end of it for sort of fringe runs where you're doing yeah. the same poem about uh, loss every day. I actually, I've, I actually have had that experience. I wrote mm. a poem about my, my grandmother um, mm. and sort of specifically about the death of my grandmother. And I'm not very good at memorising poems and I don't I don't really do it. But that yeah. was one that I did memorise for a couple of slams. This is years ago when I still had the chops to do slams. Um, and it got to the point where I was just quite disturbed. I could be standing... I mean, I remember delivering this poem in the Mitchell Library in their big hall, standing mm -hmm. on stage. My mouth was making the right shapes, the right words were coming out, but I was thinking about completely different things. You know, I was thinking mm -hmm. about like what I was going to get for tea that night and stuff. And you yeah. just think, oh, this is really disingenuous. Like, I'm trying to move these people with this poem about my dead grandmother. Yeah. And I'm thinking about what's on my shopping list. Like, I think there is something about always trying to change it up in some way so mm. that, you know, that's, you get that authenticity. That that's is, a dreadful word, but. That is, no, it's definitely worth I actually might do a podcast about that. Um, so, um, if anyone's listening to this and I haven't had a podcast about that, please remind me <laughs> because that's probably worth exploring. Um, I'm going to move on now to Juno Spring by Dorian Lowe. And one thing that I'm always reminded of whenever I do this is that I never check out to pronounce things. <laughs> I really need to start doing that. None of that was wrong. Good. That's fine. That's a, <laughs> I think, that is a I lucky know. guess. Um, <laughs> but yes, I need to do that. I'll edit this out, but it's definitely <laughs> worth listening to again when I in the edit to remind me to do that. Okay, so Juno Spring by Dorian. Do you want me to read this one? Uh, oh yes, this is this is one we can definitely so, do that with. Just part because I'm like, which one's that again? <laughs> That's the one about Alaska. That's all yes. I remember. <laughs> this is one, it's about Alaska, but it really reminded me of working in Waterstones. That's interesting. Um, she's talking about sweeping up onions. <laughs> is that why? Um, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Specifically, the you've got a job that isn't necessarily fun to do, but there's maybe a holiday book or something that you're going to holding on to in the future. Yeah just to get through. That's the, the carrot yeah. that makes the stick worth it. <laughs> yes, that's what it reminded me of. Uh, right. Other bookshops that are awful are available. <laughs> I, I should, that's, this is Waterstones of a long time ago, and I've no idea what they're like to work for now. I will say nothing. Yes. <laughs> I am aware that they are very good at nefarious <laughs> business practices with local bookshops. Yes. So, yes uh, for more information, please read Golden Hair Books. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so, okay, Juno Spring. In Alaska, I slept in a bed on stilts, one arm pressed against the ice-feathered window, the heat on high, sweat darkening the collar of my cotton thermals. I worked hard to buy that bed, walked towards it when the men in the booths were finished crushing hundred-dollar bills into my hand, Pitchers of beer balanced on my shoulder, set down like pots of gold. My shift ended at 5am, 
Station tables wiped clean, salt and peppers replenished, ketchups married. I walked the dirt road in my stained apron and snow boots, wool scarf, second-hand gloves, steam rising off the backs of horses wading chest-deep in fog. I walked home slow under Orion. His starry belt hung heavy beneath the cold, carved moon. My room was still, quiet, squares of starlight set down like blank pages on the yellow quilt. I left the heat on because I could afford it, the house hot as a sauna, and shed my sweater, my skirt, towed off my boots, slung my damp socks over the oil heater's coils. I don't know now why I ever left. I slept like the dead, while outside my window the sun rose low over the glacier, and the glacier did its best to hold on. Though one morning I woke to hear it giving up, sloughing off a chunk of antediluvian ice that sounded like the door to heaven opening on a badly hung hinge. Those were un- those undefined days I stared into the blue scar where the ice had been, so clear and crystalline it hurt. I slept in my small room, and all night, or what passed for night that far north, the geography of the world outside my window was breaking, changing shape, and I woke to it and looked at it and didn't speak. So, yeah, the thing with that is, it also just scared me to listen to that I have actually worked in a cafe, which would be, but it didn't make me think of that job. Um, it is definitely going to, this is a thing that drags you through something, mm-hmm. which is, again, very much a good choice for whatever situation you find yourself trapped yeah. in. Um, so, yeah, is that why you picked it? Or? Um, I'm kind of realising that a lot of these poems are about being alone and kind of self-sufficiency mm. and I was maybe more plugged into the the theme of this podcast than I realised <laughs> when I chose these poems. I thought I was just chewing, choosing my faves um, but I'm kind of realising these are a lot, a lot of poems about sort of resilience on your own, you know. Um, I just, I like the way she talks about this time that she lived by herself and she obviously didn't talk to people very much and she went and did like a, what sounds like a fairly dead-end job and went home and got in, got in bed and, and the, the pleasures in her life were being able to leave the heating on and like seeing the horses as she walked home from work, you know, and it's, it's there's something quite, without it being whimsical, it kind of appeals to the idea of just a very simple, self-sufficient life. Mm. Um, and I quite like that. Oh yeah, there's, there's no whimsy in it at all. It could have been quite easy to to indulge in that. Mm. Just maybe add a little bit of detail about the hope, but no, there's nothing in there at all. Um, so yeah, the I don't know the whole sort of spring thawing, everything changing outside thing. It's very much gotten made specifically all the jobs that I've hated, where there's been maybe a weekend away mm-hmm. that has made me go, okay, it's fine. I just need to get through this week and then the next two weeks, and then and I can then. go on this thing, <laughs> and it will be fine. Yeah, and then you just. It just it, it very much reminded me of of that. Uh, yeah, next, it's, uh, it's kind of a poem about adulting. Like I really oh, like yeah. the way she says, "I worked hard to buy that bed," and it's that idea yeah. of you get to a certain age in life and suddenly you have to buy your own stuff. You know, yes. you don't live in rented houses where it all 
it comes for free anymore. It's like, yeah. oh god, I have to buy a bed. People, people, adults do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, and then you're kind of fiercely proud of of the things that you've managed to afford to buy. <laughs> so yeah, I have. The thing is now is, is we've got garden now. Oh, yeah. yeah, so it's like, oh, gardening. Even next oh. level adulting. <laughs> yeah, just to sort of phone mum's like, mum, how do you garden? It's <laughs> <laughs> like, what kind of soil do you have? Do you have plentiful? <laughs> it's brown. It's brown. <laughs> it's full of roots of things that I don't know what they are. It's reminding me of various horror films I've seen. Um, yeah, um, so yeah, adulting. Um, <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm not showing off that I've got a garden. I was genuinely surprised yeah, when that super happened. Super gel, super it's, gel. <laughs> oh, it's, it is not good at the moment, but it will be good. I suppose that's the point of gardening. We'll do it. Uh, next up, um, is this England's garden? No, it's Kent's England's garden, isn't it? I forget the technical names. It's the Lake District. Yes. It's uh, yes. Scapple Pike by yes. Nora Nicholson. Now, you grew up around. Yeah, my, my whole family are Cumbrian, so yeah. I'm, um, I kind of think of Norman Nicholson as sort of my surrogate mad uncle. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I know him really well. <laughs> um, he's actually, the, it's interesting, he's the only English poet out of this lot, I've realised. Mm. As you were reading them out, I realised they're all Americans and Canadians, except for him mm. and Kerry Hardy, who's from Northern Ireland, which is interesting. Mm. No. Anyway. Mm. Um, yeah, so Norman Nicholson... Uh, this sort of famous eccentric Lake District poet kind of walking in the, the very big shoes of Wordsworth and Coleridge and all that lot um, but he very much didn't write like Wordsworth and Coleridge and all that lot with their daffodils and their trees and all that kind of thing he famously wrote um, a poem about the Windscale disaster Windscale is what mm -hmm. is now Sellafield um, he was writing eco poems like in the 1940s um, and kind of warning us about climate change in the 1940s before anyone was talking about it. So he was a bit of a cantankerous old bloke. Um, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of him. <laughs> yeah, no, um, okay, someone who I'd heard of but not read before. Um, and again, it's another cheery... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can read this one as well. It's quite short. Uh, and I can... Do my best Cumbria accent. <laughs> will I be able to understand it? No, you I will. Have, you will. I mean, okay. this this kind of is. I have met Cumbrians. So I've just had to go. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't. Listen, I, see, I, I think, can't understand that. I sorry. think Cumbrian is quite a, like like my dad is has a really really Cumbrian voice. And one of the things about Cumbrians, I think, is they all pronounce their consonants very clearly. So yes. my dad talks like this, and it's like very very deliberate. <laughs> so yeah. I won't do that, but, um, <laughs> okay, Scarfell Pike. Look along the well of the street, between the gasworks and the neat sparrow-stepped gable of the Catholic chapel, high above the tilt and crook of the tumble-down roofs of the town, Scarfell Pike, the tallest hill in England. How small it seems. So far away, no more than a notch on the plate glass window of the sky. Watch a puff of kitchen smoke block out peak and pinnacle, rock pie of volcanic lava half a mile thick, scotched out at the click of an eye. Look again, in 500, 1000 or 10,000 years, a ruin where the chapel was, brown rubble and scrub and cinders where the gasworks used to be, 
no roofs, no town, maybe no men, but yonder, where a lather rinse of cloud pours down the spiked wall of the skyline, see, Scarfell Pike, still there. While you were reading it, it occurs to me there's a sort of similar sentiment to Ozymandias, but without any sort of knowledge, having to have any sort of knowledge of Greek mythology. Um, <laughs> in there, just the thing that got me at the end, at the ending of that, of um, the tallest hill in England still there, and previously in it, um, one person can shut out the hill with mm-hmm. like, a blink of an eye, and uh, it's so. Like very much sort of a thing about ephemeral mm. quality of life mm-hmm. um, and it just I don't know it does give you that sort of feeling of again this can really it's one of the things that can really depend on your mood uh, when I read it, it I think I was probably just possibly just kind of read the poems you'd sent me in a row and was maybe feeling a bit <laughs> <laughs> like you wanted to kill yourself potentially <laughs> A bit down. Really depressing. <laughs> it's no, it's fine. I, I, I like depressing poetry. <laughs> Just occasionally, you're going to get that thing of um, sort of in, in, in the sequence is important as well because I think people just sort of send me the the minimalist they occur mm. to them in, and mm-hmm. um, sometimes I move the sequence around after. Oh, that's interesting. Um, to try and sort of come up with some sort of through line. Uh, whereas this, I think we've just done that with one poem, mm-hmm. which summarises them quite well. Yeah. Um, but the rest is all in that order. So, but yeah, no, it's, uh, it's sort of, what's the phrase I'm looking for? It's like, um, bleak, but in a way that sort of make, um, spine-tingly bleak. Like, so maybe a good post-rock album. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's I like, It's sort of, I don't know, it's sort of big slabs of minor chords, but it does give you that sort of spine-ting wing-water anyway. Yes. I mean, he's, he's an interesting guy. I think knowing a bit about him and having read others of his, it, it, for me there's a lot in there. Like, I think he one of his big things is that humans, we think we're the big I am, and you know, mm. we, we look at something like Scaffold Pike and we think, oh, well, I can, you know, I can put my thumb over the window and I can't see it anymore. You know, that idea that mm. we almost behave like we're gods when it comes to the natural world. Um, and so he's kind of handing down a warning and saying, look, in 500 or 1,000 years' time, mm-hmm. town might be gone, but Scaffold Pike will still be there, so just mind your P's and Q's. Yeah. But I think there's also a kind of, it's that sort of Cumbri- weird Cumbrian pride of like, mm. there is an element, you know, he had to mention it's the tallest hill. He couldn't yeah. leave that out. And it had to be <laughs> Scaffold Pike. It couldn't be one of the many other fells in, in Cumbria. So I'm always like, Scaffold Pike's still there. I think there's a bit of like, you know, the kind of strange pride about it. Because um, he was quite a prideful gent. And he was always trying to prove to like the London poetry establishment that, you know, he could live in his little cottage in Millum yeah. and not have to bother with all their airs and graces and stuff. So I can see a bit of that kind of... Uh, yeah. Willfulness in the poem as well. Scaffold Pike will be there past the shard. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Which overall I'm in favour of. Yeah, definitely. Happy about that. But then I would say that because I'm also a comedian. Well, I'm from I'm from up north. Obviously, I sound like it from the
Uh, so next up, um, what do women want? By Kim Adonis. Yes. Yes. Um, this is this is fun. Yeah. I, again, this this one was not one that I chose based on the theme of this podcast. Really, mm. she's just my all-time fave mm. poet. I absolutely love her. You and didn't put an email anything at all. Anything at all by Kim Adonisio, yeah. Um, but this this one is kind of quite well known and and it's just a good old feminist rant, basically. So I thought, let's, yeah. let's have one of those in the midst of all this misery <laughs> of the rest <laughs> of the poems. So, yeah. No, definitely. Um, I, I haven't got anything to add to it whatsoever. It's just a display of power and confidence. Yeah. And it's... <laughs> Um, it's just a joy to read, mm-hmm. and I, I feel like it's one of those ones that would be good to get a video of as well. Yeah. Those uh, ones of, uh, of her reading it. And if they, are, if they are, I'll put it on the blog, and you can enjoy it as well. Because oh, it's yeah, it does sound like one of those ones that would go down well yeah. live, especially. Yeah. There'd be some energy there that go down. It's kind of, it's an unusual poem of hers because she's, one of the reasons I like her is I think it's to do with being a teenager in the late 90s and liking Alanis Morissette and stuff. Like, a lot of her poems are, if you're a fan of Alanis Morissette, you'll like Kim Adonizio. They're kind of like angry ex-boyfriend poems and, you know, angry, like, I don't get on with my mom poems (laughs) and stuff. Um, That's not all they are, but... There's a lot of, of angst in them, and so this one is just a kind of nice break from that. And she's basically just, you know, it's, it's kind of a body yeah. confidence, self confidence anthem. So you can't go wrong with that, really. It's I, I just like the sort of the joke in the what do women want, and this is obviously the, a sort of general state punchline. Um, and the title of Mel Gibson film, which is just yes. like red, it's like <laughs> such a red flag. Um, and to answer it is, I don't. It's not anything on the lines of I want um, you know, these political concepts mm-hmm. or anything. I want those clothes because I will really fucking enjoy wearing them. Yep. And it will be great. Yep. And <laughs> that just yeah, that that's an extra level to it that I really. Light. Um, so it turns out I could add a couple of things to it, but, um, <laughs> I've but just... yeah, that's it's just. I don't, yeah, I, I will now say there's no more I can add to it. Just go and listen to it. Okay, <laughs> I've actually just realised it, it connects quite nicely to that Dorian Lowe one. It's the mm. same thing of like, you know, I'm an adult now and I can go out and mm. do things that make me happy and screw anybody who doesn't like it. Basically, so um, I hadn't realised that those two were kind of yeah similar, but they are in a way. No, that's true. Oh, no, um, again, the sort of thing of self-sufficiency, which is, I mean, if this was, for example, a desert island, which legally I'm obliged to say it, it isn't, isn't necessarily, <laughs> but it could be because desert islands are a general thing. Um, I don't know. Yeah, just this feeling of if you're on your own, then self-sufficiency is going to be definitely useful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I do not have the knowledge to know what you can make clothes out of in a desert island, but maybe some will just get swept up in some luggage that's come out of a Hopefully. boat or something. Yeah, and I mean, if you watch Castaway with uh, Tom Hanks, that's basically what happens. Oh, right, I haven't seen he, that. He okay. gets stuff that he needs because stuff washes up on the beach. Because it's a, is it a Steven Spielberg film? I think so. If you haven't seen it, 
I don't know if you should watch it. It's like I've never wept more at a film in my life. He makes friends with the football because he has no, he has, he obviously has nobody there with him and he's wow. getting lonely and going mad. And a football washes up on the beach, so he puts a face on it and makes friends with it. And then, spoilers, it floats off into the ocean. And it's like the oh, saddest thing I have ever seen. It's only, heartbreaking. I think only, Tom, only because it's Tom Hanks do I think that. I think I can't imagine any other actor doing that. Yeah, um, <laughs> reading that script and going, yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> that sounds even sadder than the bit in Sword in the Stone when Arthur's turned into a squirrel and there's another squirrel. The lady squirrel. And she doesn't understand because he can't speak squirrel. Yeah. And that bit, I remember being, I think that was the first time I filmed for my heart. Yeah. The hardest lessons about unrequited love oh, learned yeah. through the sword and the stone. Yeah, totally. it's like, <laughs> yeah, just don't fall in love with a squirrel. <laughs> it can only end badly. Yeah, and to be fair, that wasn't sunk in. It's never happened. There's no good segue from that into. No. <laughs> I'm actually never is running into you, Sharon Olds. That sort oh, yeah. of segues in from the squirrel thing. A little, yeah, this, if, this... if you pretend it does, then it does. Yeah. So we'll go with that. <laughs> So uh, there'll be a video of this on the um, on the blog that you can read, and um, I'll try to find some text with it as well. So this one, um, this is less fun, but still yes. fun. This one, I've got kind of slightly odd reasons for mm. choosing this one, which I'm a huge fan of Sharon Olds. I think she's great. This is from Stag's Leap, which was a collection that she wrote about her divorce. She'd been married to this bloke for decades, and they have children together and so on. And then um, he cheated on her, and so they got divorced. And she wrote an entire poetry collection about it, which I think is probably one of the best forms of revenge <laughs> that there is. Especially as I think it then went to win on win like every major poetry prize there is. You know, it became a huge as poetry books go it became a huge hit um, that is a good revenge yeah yeah um, but the reason I picked this poem out of it is because it's I listened to an interview that she did for a podcast I think and she said this is the only one that she regrets writing and she regrets putting in the book okay. because it's kind of snotty about the mistress woman mm -hmm. it's the only one that's snotty about the mistress and not snotty about him the rest are like plenty snotty about him um and she said she felt bad afterwards for being a bit rude about the woman that he cheated on her with. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of fascinated by her, you know, how classy that was, that mm -hmm. she managed to write over something like five years, this book of poems that's full of rage and, you know, completely justifiable rage mm -hmm. towards her husband. And she never once, except for in this poem, let that rage leak over to involve the other woman and then when she did she made like a public apology for doing so and I was just yeah. kind of like Sharon Olds you kind of are a great example of how to be a person you yeah. know um, I think the poem's great to be honest I don't think it's that smutty but <laughs> I was just really interested in that I've never heard of a poet be that kind of obsessively self-reflective before no and a whole, <laughs> a whole book on it and also yeah there's a Drifting in for one, for one poem of five years worth and only just sort of drifting in a bit yeah. towards Mistress, that's quite good going. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I subtweet other poets all the time. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like my main 
poetry thing, if I'm honest. I think I now subtweet more than I write poems. Just, you know, they're shorter. Um, well, not necessarily, it depends. Maybe that Hemingway one. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I... This did sort of stand out a little bit in that respect of... Um, movies have not been quite as on theme, but then if you weren't, like, that's the sort of, if you weren't deliberately picking theme, then that's mm. not exactly anything you can Well, I guess, I kind of think of, I, I think I said to you when I picked my original email, I would also have liked to have had a Mary Oliver poem yeah. as well, and didn't have room. And Sharon Olds and Mary Oliver are kind of like my poetry fairy godmothers. They're mm-hmm. like these two elder states women of poetry who have been writing for years and years, and they just have so much wisdom to pass down to the yeah. rest of us and so if I was going to be in some isolated situation I'd, I'd just like to have my fairy godmothers with me basically. Yeah, um, no one has thought of poetry fairy godmothers or poetry genies in these situations <laughs> yet so yeah definitely um, seeing as I can uh, I'm sort of able to arbitrarily allow these things <laughs> yep Definitely. Okay, cool. <laughs> you've, yes, you've got those. Uh, you also have... Yeah, good segue. Wait. You, um, <laughs> Kerry Hardy's She Replies to Carmel's Letter. Yeah. Yes. Um, I've got this one, this did um, line up with some of the other ones. Mm-hmm. More sort of small wonders from unexpected places. Yes. Also being alone, self-sufficient. And as a, I know, a wintry landscape as well. Yeah. Which, um, crops up a couple of times. Yeah. 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 So Kerry Hardy is um, a Northern Irish poet who writes a lot about sickness, being ill. Um, she has ME, and I think possibly a variety of other, an additional range of challenges on top of that. Um, and so she writes a lot about kind of ill health and how you keep on keeping on in spite of chronic health conditions and this poem is a really it's kind of like some of the others as you say it's the appreciation of the small things it's like Marie Howe trying to appreciate spilling coffee on herself even though her brothers are dead um this is Kerry Hardy goes out on a walk with some friends and she's too ill to go the whole way so she basically like sits down in the middle of the road and they carry on walking and she just sits there because she can't get up um, and instead of kind of being maudlin about it she looks around her and writes a poem about um, all the things that she can see and it's just full of like beautiful imagery of small things um, so I wasn't sure um, I didn't, again I wasn't sure of the background to this so the poem um, in and of itself I felt like it was maybe a, a child at Christmas with the family mm. and the child's just gone no I don't want to walk any further well, that's interesting um, yeah. possibly that says more about my attitude to <laughs> festive exercise <laughs> than the actual poem itself but there's there's a thing in that of um, context is good because if you're doing a sort of come from a from background one thing I've noticed is um, there can be a tendency um, to over-explain the poem before you read mm-hmm. the poem, and ideally, the poem should be able to stand on its own. Yeah. And this is an example of, without that background knowledge, it still works completely, mm-hmm. but with it, it just it, it goes, oh, I see, so that's where yeah. the situation is. It doesn't actually make a huge 
Yeah, and it's it's possible. I think she even wants a bit of that reading in it. You know, she kind of presents herself as being quite childlike. At one point, she talks about being sat like a duck in a puddle. Yeah, was that something as well? Yeah. So she does kind of present herself, or rather, she presents the speaker of her poem as being quite kind of childlike and having a childlike fascination in the stuff that's around them. So I don't think that's even necessarily an incorrect reading of it. I think that's there. Yeah. this is that thing of um, there's going to be context as well because if it's uh, in the collection, because mm. um, in the collection I've got listed as selected poems, so that might not have the That's same just sort of maybe lazy context. <laughs> That's where I found yeah. it. <laughs> um, if it's in the sort of collection of not selected poems, but you know, sort of structured one, mm. then the context might be more obvious from mm-hmm. that. Um, but it's sort of um, that thing of doing shows where. You are told no intros, just go in, bang yeah. the poem. And ones where maybe it's like you're doing a 20 minute set and you can, you know, you can do a bit of patter mm-hmm. where you can introduce it, but you don't want to give too much away. Mm-hmm. It's maybe do a trailer for it yeah. one sentence. <laughs> but um, so yeah, that that sort of situation um, just it reminded me of that slightly. The kind of way when you said that's what the poem is actually, you know, representing in. Those terms, possibly. I mean, we don't actually. Well, yeah, true. 100%. True. But she um, might yeah. listen to this and, and go, "What is this woman talking about? You're going to completely <laughs> wrong." So, you never know. Yeah. But. Um, but yeah, that reminded me of that um, thing. I've, I've been trying to write down some instructions for people doing open mics for the first time recently, mm. and the thought struck me as I know you're nervous, but don't describe the whole poem before you do the poem. Just do the yeah. poem, and yeah. if the poem's good, people will get it. And if it's not good, then you need to write it better. To be honest, there are some great poets of our time who mm. need that. Yes. Who need that lesson. Like, I love her, but Liz Lockhead is terrible for that. She will literally talk before mm. the poem for longer than the poem. Um, and you kind yeah. of like, Liz, you're a genius. You don't need to do this. Just, some, the poems are great. It's, you know? If it's entertaining, then it's not a problem. But, oh, yeah, she's always funny. She's always, yeah, things. let's not let... There's going to be... There's some occasions when it's just a case of... And so you need to know that this is set on the east coast of Lewis at yeah. 4 p.m. Yeah. and a waning yeah. moon and yeah. so on. <laughs> and you're just gonna go, just, and then they sort of read the poem, and it's just like two lines about a boat. And it's like, oh, that really wasn't worth the build up. Sort of thing. Um, that's the kind of lo- the low end of the, you over explain it, and it's a bad poem anyway. Um, <laughs> that's. Ah, I haven't been doing open mic night for a while. I need to get back in the game on that. Experience these things in the wild. I think often people just talk because they're not ready yet. Like they're trying to find mm. their page in their notebook or whatever, and yeah. they're just not ready yet. So they're kind of like waffle. I mean, I'm I'm guilty of that as well. Like if my bookmark's falling out of my book, I'll be like, anyway, yeah, yada yada yada. Yes. <laughs> you're kind of aware that you're doing it, and you just think, yeah, I think it's definitely a time filler, nerves mm. thing. I do that as well. Um, Whereas actually, if you just, if I, you or I just mm. shut up and found the page in mm. silence, it would probably be a lot quicker. But, you know. Probably. And then we can have <laughs> to talk less. And generally speaking, that can only be, uh, in my case, it's definitely a good thing. Just say a few words. It's one proof. I went on a public speaking course and. Uh, the woman teaching it said that when you get up to, to deliver your speech or your poem or whatever, 
you should stand in front of the audience and look at them in silence for at least 15 seconds. <laughs> and she made us do that, and I was just like, nope, absolutely not doing this at the photo reading. Nope, really. It's a long time that when you're actually doing it. <laughs> and I think people would just think you were mad. Or possibly throw things at you. I, I <laughs> might get away with it, but only because I've got a persona that would allow me to. Got I think a lot randomness. of poets wouldn't, but quite a lot of people might just, depending on the audience, I mean I'm probably not going to do it at like sort of like the National Library or something, but if I was at Loud Poets, no offence Loud Poets, and also because you've got a band to fill in the noise, I think I would probably get away with yeah. that, and it actually might work. Maybe we should all <laughs> try it, I mean this woman is an expert on public speaking, so yeah. maybe we should actually all try it. She's not the person who told the Conservative Party to stand like those characters from Blackhead of the Third, though, is she? I really hope not. Okay. She didn't tell us to do that. No, so. it's probably okay. <laughs> but yeah, try that next time. If you've got, don't try it on your first go, ever, for an open mind. <laughs> Maybe once you've been doing it a few years, try leaving a good old long pause. Just staring at them. Just staring at them. Without blinking. And then... Get back down off the stage. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, don't don't do that. Oh, God. Please cut this out. (laughs) (laughs) We've got a lot of people holding up in mics complaining to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That ask you woman gave me dreadful advice. You know, you'd be the head of a movement now. The, the creepy staring movement. I don't know if I oh, want yeah, to be the head of the best movement. Name. <laughs> the Askew Games. Silence. <laughs> yeah. Right. Moving on. Moving on to... Uh, this is the last poem. Um, zip through these. Um, especially with all the bits we've got to edit out for, yeah. for libel reasons. <laughs> um, I'll keep that bit in. Okay. But I'll explain it. Um... So, uh, finally, I think this thematically seems to tie everything up reasonably well. Uh, Ruin and Beauty from the book of the same name by Patricia Young. And my notes on this pretty much just say, I think there's a line in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy which is just, just sit back and be harrowed. Yeah, basically. I mean, yeah, it's unsettling from the first line. It's gloriously unsettling. But kind of pleasingly so. so like, I guess this is the part where I can reveal that my uh, isolation would not be on a desert island or, or similar, but my poems all seem to be quite post-apocalyptic. So yes. in the choices of poems, I seem to be like staggering through a post-apocalyptic wilderness. Um, and this poem is about an, an apocalypse in which no more children are born and the last humans are just slowly dying out. And uh, she talks about how the wolves are getting brave and they're coming down out of the forests to eat things and stuff. Um, but it's kind of a nice poem as well, weirdly. You know, she talks about like sitting on the porch with her husband and watching the rain fill up the coffee cans and all this kind of thing. And it's kind of a poem about, yeah, this, this, the end of the world is nigh, but like, mm. we're just, you know, enjoying couple, what we've got. As a <laughs> so, couple, they're actually having quite a sort of quiet retirement. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And yeah. Quite a lot of the issues of retirement have been erased yeah. by the apocalypse, um, possibly nuclear from the, yeah. from the tone as well. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I think maybe four years ago this poem would probably be a bit less depressing, but yes. whereas now there's obviously that kind of building fear 
but um, uh, that's beyond the control of this podcast. Um, Unfortunately, yes. So, yeah. Although that <laughs> early comment about revolution, I still stand by that. Um, yeah, it's, I think "Ruin and Beauty" is a um, is a very good title for yeah. the poem. It's, I mean, it summarizes it perfectly. There's there is exactly what it says on the tin happening there and yeah so you think you would be just in sort of remains of a house collecting water potentially from the rain. but I th- I, with this one I think I kind of the things that she highlighted as being quite nice about mm. the apocalypse I yeah. kind of agree with like she talks about how the there's no noise anymore and there's no sirens and stuff and mm. and she also is kind of looking at nature taking back these urbanised spaces she talks about like morning glory and crabgrass and things um, mm. just kind of covering up the pavements and all this sort of stuff and you say yeah that probably would look quite nice actually yeah. living in this apocalyptic garden of Eden she makes it sound quite appealing there is actually honest. yeah it does and so just going through it again, it really does tie the other ones together really well. Heaven for Paul does have the sort of opening act of a apocalyptic film mm-hmm. quality to it. Yep. What the living do, I mean, just that thing of the sort of minutiae of everyday life, mm-hmm. and just the fact you're able to do that still is, in a way, a miracle. Um, the sort of concept of just you've got these little tasks you do, and then you get home to a sort of very simple uh, bunk bed on stilts. Mm-hmm. Um, winter outside, um, Scaffold Pike, the, the hill that will survive humanity, yeah. and then the, the ephemeral nature of humanity, and I suppose running into you is probably less... Yeah, in the yeah. midst of these, you've then got Kim Adonizio and Sharon Oltz, who are just yeah. Yeah, they're having being it. sort of ballsy feminists they're, they're living their best lives somewhere say like Paris is still going they're just yeah. having a great old time there well you know just may as well um, so yeah I think that summarises quite what we like to do in Apocalypse it's just yeah they're all poems about you know being self-sufficient and just sort of getting on with it mm. just get on with it yeah so. which is quite a good quite a good message to someone who is living in a shack in the apocalypse. Yeah. Try and try yeah. and just get on with it, love. 